This is Our American Stories, and we love music here on the show, and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment, and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, 1978, the Bee Gees started a four-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with Staying Alive. From the film soundtrack Saturday Night Fever, it gave the Bee Gees their fifth number one. The Beatles made their U.S. live debut on The Ed Sullivan Show. They performed five songs, including their number one at the time, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Never before had so many viewers tuned into a live television program, which brought in 73 million viewers, or three-fourths of the total adult audience in the United States. The show had received over 50,000 applications for the 728 seats in the TV studio. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. And in 1981, American singer and musician Bill Haley, who became known as the first rock and roll star, was found dead, fully clothed on his bed in his home in Harlingen, Texas, from a heart attack, age 55. He scored the 1955 UK and US number one single Rock Around the Clock, as well as See You Later Alligator, Shake, Rattle and Roll, Rocket 88, and Skinny Many. Haley was blinded in his left eye as a child due to a botched operation and later adopted his distinctive split curl hairstyle to distract attention from his blind eye. In 1990, suffering from depression, American singer-songwriter Del Shannon died of self-inflicted gunshot wounds. He scored the 1961 number one single, Runaway, plus nine U.S. and 12 other U.K. top 40 singles. I'm a walking in the rain, tears are falling and I feel a pain, wishing you were here by me. In 1963, he became the first American to record a cover version of a song by the Beatles. His version of From Me to You charted in the U.S. before the Beatles did. Shannon had been working with Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne and was rumored to be replacing Roy Orbson, who had recently died in the Traveling Wilburys supergroup. And in 1977, this week in music history, Fleetwood Mac released rumors... Loving you isn't the right thing. 
songs Go Your Own Way, Don't Stop, and Dreams were released as singles. Rumors is Fleetwood Mac's most successful release, along with winning the Grammy Award for Album of the Year in 1978. The record has sold over 45 million copies worldwide, making it one of the most best-selling albums of all time. And born this week in music history, 1948, American singer-songwriter Alice Cooper. He had the 1972 UK and US number seven single, Schools Out. Cooper's live shows feature guillotines, electric chairs, fake blood, deadly snakes, baby dolls, and dueling swords. Alice Cooper now has his own radio show and is a born-again Christian. Also born this week in music history, 1945, the one and only Bob Marley, the masterful singer, songwriter, and guitarist who had hits like No Woman, No Cry. In July of 1977, Marley was found to have a type of malignant melanoma under one of his toenails. Marley's health deteriorated and the cancer spread throughout his body. He died on May 11th in 1981. In 1990, February 6th was proclaimed a national holiday in Jamaica to commemorate his birth. Marley was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994. And in 2016, a new species of black tarantula that lives near Folsom Prison, California, was named after Johnny Cash. Afonophelma Johnny Cashy was among 14 new tarantula species from the southern U.S. which were described by biologists in the journal Zookeys. And that's This Week in Music History. And this is Our American Stories. I bet there's rich folks here in a fancy dining car. They're probably drinking coffee. And smoking big cigars Well, I know I had it coming I know I can't be free 
This is Our American Stories, and that music cues us for one of our favorite regular features, and that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell, and she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal, and for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance, our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal, and one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell, and her latest question How often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you know, I need Heidi, a cup of coffee right now. I, I need two, and I, I drink soda, <laughs> so I don't drink coffee. I get my caffeine from Coca Cola, but you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll we'll oh. have to. I know it's gross, but let's talk about <laughs> how did where, why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more just the the devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for forever, they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the you know, the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch and in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for fifteen, twenty years. You're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the allowed question to... was like, Whose are these and why are they so attached to these and is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug? sitting in there for years yeah and by the way it's not only that you can't use them some people won't even let you look at them or touch them it's so personal <laughs> no don't look at my mug do not look at my mug <laughs> i mean you get attached to these things they're hard to find the perfect mug I, I i understand that so so tell me this first heidi do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days i'm the worst because i i get my coffee from the guy at the cart and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American, because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. Well, this, this, gives, get a mug. this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And, and what's <laughs> the worry here, Heidi? You, you, you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that, that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? You know, there are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, the, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching, maybe, but you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't, there's never been a case as far as the NIH or, or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were, there was a, a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug. It's cool. It's, your mug's fine. Your so mug's, so you what about that, fine. you know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the, uh, the office coffee mug, talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never, ever replace it. And, you know, it would start to get them nervous. Talk about that. Also, talk about Navy sailors who take really great pride in what I call or what you call seasoning the mug, seasoning the mug. I like that. I love this. Um, so, so I was talking to, uh, you know, this Dr. Stark, who, um, you know, he was the director of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And, and you're talking about, you know. about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that yeah. part of your column. Who knew? 
Who knew no. these people existed? Yep. Right. Well, he, he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, that in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called, um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So, um, so he said there, there was some, if you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that um, – the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug. And that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so the, the longer you let it, it your, your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn, you know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee. So, uh, so yeah, so, it, there's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the of the mug, un, empty, unwashed mug, is bad for you. Doesn't harbor germs, doesn't harbor infectious disease, hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you you know you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug. Kind of gross. It is kind of but, gross. It is kind of. But here's where it gets grosser. Doctor Stark. This is, I'm going to quote from your article, Heidi, and I know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them. But here's Dr. Stark's quote, which you include in the piece. Now, if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend, now that can certainly cause mold to grow. And if your mug had obvious signs of mold, you might not want to drink from it. Talk about that, Heidi. I think that's fairly obvious. But haven't you done that where you like... I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning, then he leaves it in the car all day, and then the next morning he's like, meh. And I'll just drink his coffee from the car. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff. The lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office is just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out. And then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst, but milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But, you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the, I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't, it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year. So a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat, and then I'll leave it <gasps> underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that dad's oh. done it again, and there's all kinds of things growing oh in the car. Gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last? Because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like it has to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food <laughs> in the fridge it's good for me. No, I don't Coffee think so either. from yesterday is also not good. <laughs> no, it's not. So knowing all we know, uh, how should we wash our mugs? And how often should we wash them? Okay, so well, this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with like a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says like a lot of people said well, there were some, a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes or on one of those on like 
mulligan ones and um, colligan ones and, and fill your uh, mug with some hot water and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office, besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that they clean, that, you know, the place they clean that the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your, um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But, you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the, in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there, um, what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because, as Dr. Stark said, um, normal ger- people's normal germs really won't make you sick. He said if they did, then we would have to ban kissing. Oh, that's a that's a fair point, though. There are some people I don't know if I want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles of diseases, too. That's true, too. Oh, well, Heidi, what are you doing? Anything special for your Christmas season? I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, You'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most... Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. Pizza Dan- Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been on every... It's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the personal journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories. is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And most of our stories are about the arts, innovation, faith, love, redemptive stories, uplifting stories when we can. We know you're craving for that. We know the American people are craving for that in these times. But as you know, we don't shy away from tough topics, especially not when they touch so many of our lives, like this current opioid crisis sweeping the nation. We did a story on the Manning family and how they lost their dear son, Dustin, to an illegal opioid, a synthetic opioid called fentanyl. And fentanyl, well, it's, it's just killing people all over this country. And it's the real cause of the uptick in all the deaths you're reading about. And it's happening everywhere. The Manning family, a suburban couple, 
just living outside of Atlanta, and they just didn't see it coming. And most families don't, and you're going to learn about why in this next segment. For Americans under 50, there is nothing more dangerous than drug overdoses. It is the leading cause of death. So today, we want to take you inside a Senate hearing room. That's right, hold your breath. We haven't done this before. But it's a rare time when our U.S. senators aren't bickering, when they're not yelling at each other, and when they're talking seriously about serious things and trying to help the American people with a problem that affects Democrats and Republicans, the families alike. And by the way, you're going to hear from Rob Portman, a senator from Ohio, Ron Johnson, a senator from Wisconsin, and of course, you're going to hear from Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota. And she does a terrific job as well. And she's a Democrat. The two gentlemen are Republicans. And rarely do we get to hear Democrats and Republicans talking together like human beings. They do every day, by the way, on Capitol Hill. The cameras just aren't interested in that. That's just not interesting to the polarized nature of cable news. So let's lead off with the chairman of this committee, Senator Rob Portman from Ohio, who lays out the stakes for everyone in that room. The opioid crisis, sadly, continues to get worse, not better. Last month, the Center for Disease Control reported that more than 63,000 Americans died in 2016 from drug overdoses. Indications are that number increased in 2017. These overdose deaths are shocking. The number of deaths uh, continue to grow. My own home state of Ohio, uh, we were told recently, is now second in the country in terms of overdose deaths. It's heartbreaking. And increasingly, these overdoses are due to a synthetic heroin, uh, illegal versions of fentanyl, a drug that is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. In fact, in Ohio, fentanyl and its variations uh, were involved in 60% of the overdose deaths last year. So it's become the number one killer in Ohio. The vast majority of illegal fentanyl is purchased online from labs in China and then shipped to the United States through the mail. We'll hear from the Drug Enforcement Agency today about that. Uh, But I think it's shocking to people when they find out that this is coming through our U.S. mail system. Last night, the subcommittee released its bipartisan report, I hope you all have seen it, uh, how criminals exploit vulnerabilities in international mail and use the U.S. Postal Service to ship illicit opioids into our country. And by the way, if you remember, and if you didn't remember and didn't hear it, Mr. Manning, who lost his son, said to us here on this show, $20 in 20 minutes and your kids can get anything. And I mean shipped right to the House. And Senator Portman, well, he's listening to his constituents. He wasn't finished. After our initial 2017 hearing, we set out to find out how easy it is to purchase fentanyl online uh, and how it was shipped to the United States. What we discovered, of course, was it was shockingly easy to do so. Um, All you had to do was search uh, fentanyl for sale. That simple search returned hundreds of websites, many affiliated with Chinese labs, all openly advertising illegal drugs. The field was narrowed to just six websites, and we sent emails asking basic questions about how to purchase and ship fentanyl to the United States. These online sellers were quick to respond, unafraid of getting caught, apparently, and ready to make a deal. You'll see that in the report. 
They offered discounts for bulk purchases, even tried to upsell us to carfentanil, a more powerful synthetic heroin that is so strong it's used as an elephant tranquilizer. Ordering these drugs was as easy as buying any other product online. I must note our subcommittee never completed a purchase of drugs online. It was just too dangerous to risk exposing someone to deadly fentanyl during delivery. But we did use the online seller's payment information to determine if others were buying. And of course, we found out they were. Just from these six websites alone, we identified more than 500 payments to online sellers by more than 300 Americans, totaling $230,000, most of which occurred over the last two years. So this is just a small sample, only six websites. And then, frankly, we used just one payment system to be able to identify some of these buyers. The 300 people, by the way, were located in 43 different states with individuals in my home state of Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida sending the most money to online sellers. And this is just shocking. I was shocked when I heard it. And I think all of you are now, well, you're on notice, right? That this stuff can come into your house and your kids can order it or their friends can order it. And now we go back to Senator Portman for even more. We also asked how the online sellers would ship the drugs to us. Every single one of them preferred to use the U.S. Postal Service. They didn't want to use the private carriers uh, like DHL, FedEx, UPS. They wanted to use the Postal Service. They told us they used the Postal Service because the chances of the drugs getting seized were so insignificant that delivery was essentially guaranteed. We were also able to track hundreds of packages related to these online purchases. We identified seven people out of the 300 who died from fentanyl-related overdoses after sending money to and receiving packages from these online sellers. Uh, One of these individuals who died uh, was a 49-year-old Ohioan from the Cleveland area who sent about 2,500 bucks to an online seller, received 15 packages through the Postal Service over a 10-month period. His autopsy confirmed that he died from acute fentanyl intoxication just weeks after he received a package from this online seller. By analyzing more than 2 million lines of shipment data obtained in our investigation, we located three individuals in the United States who were likely distributing these drugs. We identified more than 120 instances of different people sending a payment to an online seller in China, and then a day or two later receiving a package from one single Pennsylvania address. Uh, The person at this Pennsylvania address, by the way, was working with the online seller to domestically transship drug purchases. Shipping data reviewed during the course of the investigation also indicated other individuals who purchased items to make pills, including pill presses, chemical bonding agents, and empty pill casings. It's not surprising that people are ordering fentanyl online to sell. The profit margins are just staggering. Based on DEA estimates, the street value of the online transactions from just the six websites the subcommittee investigated translates to about $760 million in fentanyl pills to sell on the streets of our communities. We're already working with law enforcement authorities to make sure these drug dealers can be brought to justice, and we'll continue to do so after this hearing. Uh, But our findings today show the crucial role advanced electronic data can play in protecting our country and fighting the opioid epidemic. And when we come back, you're going to hear from Senator Johnson, Senator Klobuchar, and you're also going to hear from our top law enforcement agencies in this country, all getting together and not screaming and yelling at one another, actually trying to solve a problem that not enough Americans know about, 
I'm sure not enough of you know about. We're just learning about it now, and we want to bring these stories to you as quickly as we can. And when we can, shining a good light on our own congressmen, senators, and the people who work hard for us at places like Customs and at the post office. They're trying to deal with this, and they're vulnerable. And as you learned, my goodness, they're coming after the post office more than all the other private carriers. And when you hear why... It just might get you mad. More after these messages. Our American stories, the opioid crisis, and the U.S. Senate hearing that you'll want to hear more from. Turn to our American stories and to a Senate hearing room. We haven't done that before here. We've taken you to all corners of this great country, but never before to a Senate hearing room. But this is one of those times where senators are actually acting like grown-ups. They're not fighting and they're not screaming and yelling. They're trying to solve a big problem for the American people. By the way, before you hear the next clip, I just wanted to share with you that one of the things that got mentioned over and over again is that hundreds of millions of packages go through FedEx, UPS, DHL, and our post office every day. And that this fentanyl can get shipped through these packages, well, it's one heck of a problem. Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin in this clip asks Greg Novano from U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement about the profit margins of this illicit drug. I read an article, uh, don't think it's been covering the hearing, said that about $800 worth of precursor Ingredients for fentanyl produces about $800,000 worth of street value drug. Is that even close to true? Senator, I, I, would, I would say that, that that is an accurate assessment. Um, we, we, we know that the profit margin in fentanyl is much higher than, let's say, heroin. So your, your statement is accurate. So, so obviously where there's a demand, it's going to be supplied with that kind of profit potential. Imagine that, folks. $800 worth of source fentanyl can be turned into $800,000 street value. That's a big incentive for the dealers. And again, they were talking about that demand, because the only way in the end you can beat this then is how do we stop that demand side. Senator Johnson continues by asking Todd Owen from U.S. Customs and Border Protection about the different ways that drugs like fentanyl make it into this country. Can you give us some sort of sense what percent of the fentanyl is coming in through Mexico, having been transshipped, and how much is coming in through you know, directly through our postal system. I understand, I'll talk about the purity differences later, but just give us some kind of sense. Just based on our interdiction, it's just based on the seizures. We're seeing more uh, larger seizures, of course, through the southwest border. Again, the purity, 90% pure, very small. The average shipment through the mail is only 700 grams. When we just look at our data for, for 17, uh, 854 pounds of fentanyl was seized in the land border. 335 pounds were seized in the express and mail environment. So much higher quantities, but much lower purity. So wh- wh- why the difference in the purity? Are, is, are they cutting in Mexico to actually be used immediately, or is it just the practicality of you want to ship smaller quantities? 
the seizures that we see, the fentanyl is mixed in with other narcotics, other hard narcotics. Whereas in the male environment, express environment, it's all just a single shipment of the fentanyl, that pure by itself. That pure by itself. On hearing this, Daniel Baldwin from the Drug Enforcement Agency jumped in to make a point about how this smuggled fentanyl makes it into our communities via pill mills. Senator, so I think you've hit on something that's crucially important. So we have, I think we have two really threat areas. We have the southern border threat where we have potentially where precursors uh, for uh, making fentanyl are, are found in Mexico and they're produce, producing fentanyl there. It then is adulterated into the, the, the other illegal drugs that are being pushed across the border. We then have the, the mail stream, as you said, that, are, that has a higher purity. Those then are being used at times within the United States in what we call pill mill operations where those, that fentanyl is pushed into a pill that's a counterfeit pill. I mentioned counterfeit pills in my opening remarks that look much like those same similar pills that drove the opioid crisis to begin with. Uh, so that's that the, the dosage amount in those pills is one milligram. So one milligram of, of fentanyl, if it's about 98% pure, one milligram is, a th- is one thousandth of a gram. There's a thousand grams in a kilo. That means there's a million milligrams in a kilo. So that's how many pills could be made. That's, how, that's, that's in the pill mill operation uh, process. Senator Johnson asked Mr. Navano if there are drug users who are even cutting out the middleman. In, in brief material, it almost sounded like there were just users directly buying that. Is that also the case? Or is it almost 100% the case where these things are really being shipped to some kind of pill mill? Senator, it's like any other e-commerce commodity right now. End users can actually sit in their living room and order these illicit opioids online. With with 90% purity? Would they be getting 90% purity? That is accurate, Senator. Is that why they're dying so quick? That would would be accurate, Senator. And I got to tell you, you could see Navano was just, you know, it's heartbreaking because this is his job to stop people from dying from this stuff. And you could sense almost a helplessness and some of the folks yielding and answering these questions from our senators. Mr. Rowan from Customs and Border Protection then shared a real-life story to show how his agency is using more and more data to target their search efforts. Because, again, it is not simply possible to search every one of the millions of packages coming into this country every day. It's critical that we receive the advanced data on all cargo shipments, including what we're seeing in the mail, prior to the arrival of those shipments so that we can use our analytical tools, our past seizure records, the connections that we make through our National Targeting Center to make those connections and then advise the Postal Service so that they can present the parcel before. I could give a real-life example from just last week at JFK as to the way this works. We had a shipment coming in from China. It was an e-packet, one of their express packets. The advanced information was provided through the Postal Service to us prior to arrival. We were able to target that shipment prior to arrival, placed it on hold. The Postal Service presented it. When we inspected it, we had 28 grams of an unknown white powder using the technology equipment that we now have deployed at the ports of entry, able to identify it as fentanyl. From there, we were able to work with our criminal investigative partners at ICE and DEA, as well as the NYPD, made a controlled delivery on that. And what we did was we were able to take down three additional individuals, make an arrest at that facility, pill presses, the all of the equipment to further uh, manufacture and distribute was there, as well as two M4s, so two high-power weapons that were part of that. So that is just one example. Again, only 28 grams of fentanyl, but it all started with the advanced information provided prior to arrival of the cargo, allowed us to target based on some rules that we have in our systems, some connections to previous seizures, uh, and, and allow us to 
deliver consequences with the criminal investigators to take people into custody. So I think that's a great example just from last week initiated at JFK as to how this process should work. So there is hope, and that's the good news, and that's what came out of this. Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota engaged more with Mr. Owen about using this data for search and seizure of deadly fentanyl coming in through the mail. So tell me the challenges, though, and why it isn't working everywhere. Well, the challenges, again, is the advanced information is what we need, and we need to have that advanced information prior to arrival. It needs to be accurate, and it needs to be timely. And, again, that's an area, as you've heard this morning, we're working on very closely. We've made strong progress, but there's still a lot of work to go in this regard. Uh, can you tell us about the trends that you've seen, the trends in the terms of the amounts of synthetic opioids, including fentanyl, that bad actors from overseas are shipping in? Absolutely. Uh, you know, this prob- prob- problem, as you know, came really to light a few years back. We continue to see increased interdictions both in the mail and the express environment. Last year, of the 335 pounds that we did seize, 92 pounds were in the mail environment and 240 pounds were in the express environment. So it is a threat through both pathways also through the Mexican border, again, less purity on the Mexican border, mixed in with other seizures of other hard narcotics. But the trends continue to go up as all of the changes that we're putting in place are making us more effective. We will seize more in 18 than we did in 17. But really, with that volume that we're seeing at the, at the borders, interdiction can only be one small part of the solution because the volume is just too overwhelming to think we will stop this problem simply at the border. It's so true. And Senator Portman then digs in further with Mr. Owen from Customs, again, about the use of this same data. With regard to the testimony earlier, Mr. Owen, you said that it's really important to have this advanced electronic data. And again, as I said earlier, the fact that most of you responded to the question, we just need more money, um, I would just make an obvious point. And again, I don't disagree. More resources are important. That's why we just passed legislation to give you more resources on the monitoring equipment. But it's a whole lot more cost-effective for you and your people to have advanced electronic data, isn't it? Yes, it is. The manual process that's the alternative will just not meet the challenges that we face, having to take bags of mail and run it through the x-rays, run it through the dogs, using the intuition of the officer. The volume is just too overwhelming. We have to employ a risk management approach that relies heavily on the data, the analytics that we do, the targeting work that we do. The data is the key. High-tech solutions to really high-tech problems. And these, these gangs and these illicit dealers, they're not going to stop. So in the end, interdiction is not going to be enough to solve this problem. Education on our side, law enforcement here, and in the end, treatment. And that combination is the only way to do it. Things wound up here with Senator Portman, who led this hearing, asking Mr. Owen about the differences between express carriers and the U.S. Post Office. What's your experience with the FedExes and UPSs and uh, DHLs of the world, the the so-called express consignment operators? Our report indicates that you do not have that slippage or that leakage uh, in that case. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's correct. The presentation rate from the express couriers is is about 100%. I mean, they're very effective. What I think is important to note and to remember is that they've been at this since 2002 with the passage of the Trade Act of 2002 that required the express courier operators to provide that advanced data. And I can tell you from my personal experience in those early years as they were ramping up to meet this new requirement, they struggled with a lot of the same issues with having everybody providing the data, the data being accurate, being timely, and finding the parcels that 
Customs was looking for to hold. So when I look at the success the Express couriers have had over the last 10, 12, 15 years, I see that as a model that we can employ and we are employing in dealing with the Postal Service. So they've come a long way. They're very effective at identifying or helping us to track down those shipments. I, I feel we'll be just as confident uh, in the near future with the Postal Service as well. And there you have it. Taken into the Senate hearing room, the opioid crisis in America. This was about interdiction. We're going to cover it all in our American Carnage series on the opioid crisis in this country and illegal fentanyl specifically. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we bring you author and public policy leader Herb London's latest story. Harry Von Tilzer was born Harry Gum in Detroit, Michigan, on January 8, 1872. Harry was the third of six sons of German-Jewish parents, Jacob Gabinski and Sarah Tilzegum. Shortly after his birth, the family moved to Indianapolis, where his father acquired a shoe store in the center of town. The move profoundly affected Harry's future. A theoretical stock company that rehearsed immediately above the store lured the youthful Harry into show business. At 14, he left home to become a tumbler in the Cole Brothers Circus, and a year later, he joined a traveling repertory company and then a burlesque troupe. It was around this time that he renounced his father's name, with whom he didn't get along, and took his mother's maiden name, adding the Vaughn for distinction, as so many public figures at the turn of the century did. Although he lacked formal musical training, Harry learned to play the piano and several other instruments by ear, and soon began to write and sing his own compositions. A vaudeville star he met in Chicago, Lottie Gilson, advised him to seek his fortune in New York City. She also wisely suggested that he record in his diary the colloquial expressions of the day as inspirations for his songs. Arriving in New York in 1892, he found a job as a saloon pianist, supplementing his income by playing the piano in a house of prostitution. In his spare time, he wrote songs for vaudeville performances, and in two years, the famous impresario Tony Pastor was featuring Von Tilzer tunes at his Union Square Music Hall. When I meet a certain young man, it is true. I'm so nervous and shy, I don't know what to do. Harry sold most of his songs outright for modest sums, with only a few being published under his own name. Somewhat discouraged, he stopped writing songs for a time and joined with George Sidney in 1894 in a moderately successful double Dutch vaudeville act 
some theater buffs describe as the forerunner of Smith and Dale. When the sack ran its course, Harry returned to songwriting. In 1898, he wrote his first notably successful tune, My Old New Hampshire Home, with the lyricist Andrew B. Sterling, who became his most frequent collaborator. The song sold more than two million copies and induced Maurice Shapiro, arguably New York's leading publisher, to take the young composer into his firm, which was renamed Shapiro, Bernstein, and Von Tilsen. Two years later, in 1900, Von Tilsa published one of his best-known works, a bird in a gilded cage. which he later described as the key that opened the door of wealth and fame. The song became a national sensation. Teddy Roosevelt described it as his favorite song. When Harry met the president, on one of T.R.'s whistle stops, he told the president the bird is a metaphor for a kept woman trapped in her circumstance like caged birds. Roosevelt smiled and said Harry should never repeat that story. Presenting the theme that money cannot buy happiness, the song was conceived by Harry and its official lyricist as the story of a kept woman, but the upright Von Tilzer, insisting that the heroine be married, altered a crucial line to read she married for wealth, not for love. But he married for wealth, not for love, he cried. In the original, the lyric read, She submitted to wealth, not for love. The year 1905 was perhaps Harry's most productive. For in that year he wrote, On a Sunday afternoon, Down on the farm, In the sweet bye-bye, And three wildly popular songs, the Mansion of Aching Hearts, a pathetic sequel to A Bird in a Gilded Cage, Down Where the Wurzburger Flows, which Nora Bays sang to such acclaim in her Ophium theater act that she became known as the Wurzburger Girl, and Where the Morning Glories Twine Around the Door, a song that became one of Al Jolson's favorites. Down in New England, far, far Yet as successful as these songs were, none approached the popularity of Wait Till the Sun Shines Nelly, also published in 1905 according to records of that time. It was the most popular song in the first decade of the century. Say, don't you sit there sighing down. Way down in According to Von Tilsa, the tune's provenance was based on Lottie Gilson's advice. While seated at the lobby of the Harper Hotel in New York City, Von Tilsa overheard newlyweds in emotional conversation. A tearful bride said to her beau, You promised to take me to Coney Island. Why can't we go? He responded, I know, I know, but darling, wait till the sun shines, Nellie, and the clouds go drifting by. At that moment, Von Tilsa recorded the words, and Hit was born. On the strength of his 1905 hits, Von Tilzer established his own publishing company on 28th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in a building that still stands. Not only did Von Tilzer start his own company, he started a distinctive 
American industry. And when we come back, more on the rest of the story of the life of Harry Von Tilzer. And by the way, to hear Herb's other stories, and they were terrific. One is about the impact Joe DiMaggio and Jackie Robinson had on his life as a young boy. He met both of them. And the impact so many people have on all of us when we meet them and how we treat those people. It matters. It lasts a long time. And also, a final thought segment that Herb did on his father, Yankel. And it's just beautiful. And you can find both of those at OurAmericanNetwork.org. But stick around, because when you come back and when we come back, Herb will continue the story of Harry Von Tilzer here on Our American Stories. And we continue now with the story of Harry Von Tilzer, brought to us by our regular, and that is Herb London. Back to Herb. While American music publishers existed before Von Tilzer's firm, most publishers preferred English composers. Americans were considered second rate. Even the esteemed Jerome Kern had to pretend he was from England in order to get his work published. Von Tilzer, however, loved American popular music and its idiosyncratic sound. He encouraged his friend Paul Dresser, another Hoosier and the brother of Theodore Dreiser, and the composer of My Gal Sal to come to New York and publish with his company. In 1906, almost every famous name in the nascent popular music industry was associated with the Von Tilzer firm. So noteworthy were the accomplishments that the editors of the New York Tribune assigned a reporter, Monroe Rosenfeld, himself a composer, to write a story about the Von Tilzer Music Company. When Rosenfeld arrived at the cavernous Von Tilzer building, not far from Union Square, he heard a tinny sound emanating from several pianos. Picking up on a practice Harry Von Tilzer began, popular musicians put newspapers behind piano strings in order to get a high-pitched sound. Because the corridors were wide, the sound cascaded from wall to wall, leaving the impression, so Rosenfeld thought, of a lot of tin pans banging in an alleyway. When the article about Harry Von Tilzer and his company was written, it was entitled Mr. Tin Pan Alley. For almost a century, Tin Pan Alley has represented American popular music, from sentimental ballads to rap. Yet there is scarcely a person in the music industry who knows its history or its progenitor, Harry Von Tilzer. And we're going on the bottom of the seventh. When Harry, at the apogee of his fame, four of his brothers came to New York and joined the music business. All of them took the Von Tilzer name. Perhaps the most well-known of these brothers was Albert, who wrote the most famous song of our time, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And wrote as well, Apple Blossom Time, two of the most popular songs of our time. In fact, with the exception of Happy Birthday and the Star Spangled Banner, 
there isn't a song that more frequently is sung in the United States than Take Me Out to the Ball Game. The other three brothers became heads of music publishing companies. Jules became the president of his brother's Harry Von Tilzel Music Publishing Company. A fifth brother, who retained the gum name, became a theatrical attorney, representing Ethel Waters and Lena Horne, among others. Sensitive to what the public wanted, Von Tilzel had a keen ear for the sentimental. His hits came easily. In 1911, he wrote a song for a woman he most adored, his mother. I want a girl just like the girl that married dear old dad. It was a tune almost as popular as Wait Till the Sun Shines Nelly. And in the following year, 1912, he wrote, and the green grass grew all around. Now the tree was in the hole, and the hole was in the ground, and the green grass grew all around, all around. The green grass grew all around, and on that tree. A song still popular among Boy Scouts and at campfires. These were not merely tunes to be sung and forgotten. They became institutions. Where there are barbershop quartets, there are Von Tilza ballads. His songs are as reminiscent of early vaudeville shows as straw hats and canes. Von Tilza was equally adept at other popular styles, Negro dialect songs such as Alexander and What You're Gonna Do When the Rent Comes Around, Irish ballads such as My Old Irish Mother, and novelty songs such as I Love, I Love My Wife, But Oh You Kid. He was one of the earliest composers to write a song based on popular dance, the Cubanola Glide in 1909. Von also tried his hand at several Broadway musicals, but with mixed results due no small part to his ignorance of orchestration. I want to tell you that you can't get him. Has you been a gambling, honey? Did you win? Fontilza's songwriting career was largely over by the end of World War I, albeit he wrote the lyrics for When My Baby Smiles at Me, the Ted Lewis, in the late 20s. His decline was hastened by the geographical dispersal of the music industry, which broke the monolithic influence of Tin Pan Alley by the unsentimental music taste of the jazz age and by the introduction of the microphone, which Von Tilza maintained would destroy real singing and sentimental music. Although he continued in his publishing business, his most successful post for song was Just Around the Corner in 1925. In his unpublished autobiography, Von Tilza argues that as important as his music was, his encouragement of other musical figures was at least as noteworthy. Three cases are cited. In one, Harry met a busker at the Bowery Follies in 1905 or 1906, named Izzy Balin. According to his testimony, Harry encouraged the young man to rework his 1904 song, Alexander. In addition, Harry suggested he change his name in order to lend more distinction to his music. The song in question was transformed into Alexander's Ragtime Band in 1919, and the name was changed to Irving Berlin. It is not coincidental that Harry Von Tilza and Irving Berlin were among the first inductees into the Music Hall of Fame in 1940, along with W.C. Handy, who wrote the St. Louis Blues. Second, Harry met an imaginative song plugger who caught his fancy because he was promoting a song entitled the night the lights went out on Broadway. He actually put out the gas lights on Broadway to the consternation of the public and the police. This song plugger, who aspired to be a composer, 
was given encouragement by Von Tilser. When he wrote his first song, When You Want Them, You Can't Have Them, When You Have Them, You Don't Want Them, it was published by the Harry Von Tilser Music Company. He later became America's most distinguished composer of the 20th century, George Gershwin. Third, Harry was told about a young singer who was then performing in Atlantic City. After hearing him belt out a song, Harry invited him to appear at a vaudeville show in New York he had underwritten. When the young singer arrived at the theater, he discovered a show in progress. Eyeing Von Tilsen venomously, he said, how could you invite me to sing in a show already being performed? Von Tilsen ignored the comment, but noted during the intermission, the audience will leave the theater for a libation. The young singer became even more angry. So you want me to sing to an empty theater, he said? No, Harry replied. You get up on the stage as the people begin to leave and you implore them to stay in their seats. Get down on one knee. Beg them to listen. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Tootsie? All right, hold on. The young singer heeded the lesson of Harry's elder luminary advice, and from that moment on, he sang on one knee. In fact, this gesture became the trademark of Al Jolson. Arguably, the most successful singer in the first half of the century, and the person Harry introduced to the New York stage. Jolson, by the way, wrote dozens of songs for the Harry Von Tilsen Music Company and sang many Von Tilsen tunes in his theater and nightclub appearances. On August 10, 1906, Harry married Ida Rosenberg. They did not have any children. After the death of his wife in 1932, he lived alone in the Hotel Woodward in New York City, where he died of a heart attack at the age of 73. Von Tilsen was one of Tin Pan Alley's most prolific composers. By his own estimate, he wrote 8,000 songs. About 2,000 were published. In a film entitled Tin Pan Alley, produced in 1940, the director, Walter Lang, tells the story of popular music's evolution. The story had a reprise in 1950 in the film I'll Get By, starring Dan Daly as Harry Von Tilsen. Despite his fame, fortune, and a continuing legacy, the name Harry Von Tilsen is scarcely known today. Among Hoosiers who achieve success, names as Cole Porter and Hoagie Carmichael are often recalled. Yet if one considers his contribution to the music industry, not merely his songs, Harry Von Tilsen is unquestionably an American original. He is the father of Tin Pan Alley, the Hoosier who gave the nation a lyrical voice. Although his name may not be recalled, his contribution to cultural life was live as long as Americans produce their own distinctive musical sounds. And thanks, as always, Herb London. And we love talking about music here on Our American Stories and the life of Harry Von Tilzer. Remembered now, imagine being inducted into the Music Hall of Fame in 1940, and it's Irving Berlin and it's W.C. Handy, the father of the blues in America, and Tilzer's right there. It's astounding, and I didn't know his name, and thank you, Herb, for bringing that to us. By the way, listen to our Hoagie Carmichael story of the song, and it's the story of Georgia on my mind. Hoagie, another guy from Indiana, wrote that song, and Ray Charles, well, we know what happened to the rest of that story. And Herb London's story, Harry Von Tilzer's story, Mr. Tin Pan Alley's story, here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories, and now we take a look back to the American Revolution and to an author whose anonymous publication became the voice of the rebellion. The author, Thomas Paine. The publication, Common Sense. Take it away, Jesse. Thomas Paine wrote the book on American independence, helping to set the stage for the American Revolution. As one of our founding fathers, this English-born political activist, philosopher, and badass revolutionary was known as a corset maker by trade, a journalist by profession, and propagandist by inclination. Paine migrated to the British American colonies in 1774 with the help of Benjamin Franklin. Virtually every rebel read or listened to a reading of his pamphlet called Common Sense, which argued for independence from British rule. Here's Thomas Paine with the introduction to Common Sense as Anonymous. The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances have and will arise which are not local but universal, and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind are affected, and in the event of which their affections are interested. The laying a country desolate with fire and sword, declaring war against the natural rights of all mankind, and extirpating the defenders thereof from the face of the earth, is the concern of every man to whom nature hath given the power of feeling, of which class, regardless of party censure, is the author. Who the author of this production is, is wholly unnecessary to the public as the object for attention is the doctrine itself, not the man. Yet it may not be unnecessary to say that he is unconnected with any party, and under no sort of influence, public or private, but the influence of reason and principle. Throughout the 1760s and 70s, people were getting tired of British taxation and rule. Protests were falling on deaf ears, which led to the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, and a boycott on British goods. Yet after all that drama, a lot of colonialists still had allegiances and nostalgic warm fuzzy feelings for the motherland. That became more of an unpopular position when British Parliament banned all trade with the colonies in December of 1775. But still, loyalists remained, and Thomas Paine was calling them out. The prejudice of Englishmen in favor of their own government of king, lords, and commons arises as much or more from national pride than reason. Individuals are undoubtedly safer in England than in some other countries, but the will of the king is as much the law of the land in Britain as in France, with this difference, that instead of proceeding directly from his mouth, it is handed to the people under the more formidable shape of an act of parliament. For the fate of Charles I hath only made kings more subtle not more just. Wherefore, laying aside all national pride and prejudice in favor of modes and forms, the plain truth is that it is wholly owing to the constitution of the people and not to the constitution of the government that the crown is not as oppressive in England as in Turkey. An inquiry into the constitutional errors in the English form of government is at this time highly necessary. For as we are never in proper condition of doing justice to others while we continue under the influence of some leading partiality, so neither are we capable of doing it to ourselves while we remain fettered by an obstinate prejudice. 
and as a man who is attached to a prostitute is unfitted to choose or judge a wife, so any prepossession in favor of a rotten constitution of government will disable us from discerning a good one. Thomas Paine had sold nearly 120,000 copies of Common Sense from the time it was published in January to four months later in April of 1776. The argument for independence had reached a tipping point. Thomas Paine would provide the extra push. But what exactly was the main argument of this publication? Professor of History and American Studies at Yale, Joanne Freeman, has the answer. The main argument of the pamphlet did three things. So number one, it, it basically refuted the prevailing ideas against independence. It went one step further and demonstrated the necessity of independence and how possible it was. And it demonstrated the stupidity and utter uselessness, not only of the English monarchy, but just of monarchies generally. In fact, Thomas Paine hated monarchies so much that we're still talking about his rants and raves against them to this day. In the early ages of the world, according to the scripture chronology, there were no kings, the consequence of which was there were no wars. It is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion. Holland, without a king, hath enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in Europe. Antiquity favors the same remark, for the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs have a happy something in them which vanishes away when we come to the history of Jewish royalty. Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings, and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to the worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Back in the day, in 1776, those were fighting words. Here again is Yale professor Joanne Freeman with some context on what Thomas Paine's common sense accomplished at the time. First, the crown was the last remaining emotional and political link that was really tying the colonies to the mother country. By this point, the colonists had lost faith in Parliament, so Paine certainly knew that if he could strike at this last linchpin of colonial sentiment, he could advance the cause of independence. Second, if Paine could destroy the legitimacy, not only of King George, but also of the idea of monarchy overall, then the English Constitution's legitimacy would suffer as well, once again, hopefully, opening the way for independence. And then third, I think equally important, rhetorically, Paine had a really good writer's sense of pacing, and he knew that if he opened this pamphlet with this really dramatic challenge to all of the prevailing assumptions about government, and if he turned all of these assumptions on their head, he would pull readers in to his pamphlet and into his argument immediately and hold them there for the center of his argument, which was the second section of the pamphlet, and that is really the part that focuses on independence. Independence at this point was a topic that people didn't discuss openly. They didn't talk about it in public. If discussed at all, it was discussed privately, among friends, because basically it amounted to treason. Paine's dramatic 
introduction opened the way for him to introduce this really controversial topic. If the English Constitution lacked legitimacy, well, what next? And his answer obviously is, well, independence, the obvious solution. Which then brings us to the third section of the pamphlet, and that is the future. Paine concludes the pamphlet by discussing just what Americans could institute to replace the English Constitution, like what kind of government they might be able to construct to replace what they were stripping away. They were stripping away the tyranny of British rule, word by word. Thomas Paine was the voice of the rebellion. Arms, as the last resource, decide this contest. The appeal was the choice of the king, and the continent hath accepted the challenge. When we return, more from Thomas Paine, Common Sense, and the American Revolution. This is Our American Story. And we return to the story of the American Revolution and Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Thomas Paine's Common Sense was published in January of 1776 and a bestseller by April. It had turned colonial nostalgia for Britain into a demand for independence. But Common Sense wasn't only a radical condemnation of the status quo, but the very definition of the American spirit. Here again, Thomas Paine. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Now is the seed-time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fractured now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree, and posterity read it in full-grown characters. While Paine was able to paint vivid pictures with his words, he was also very direct on how the country should move forward. Our plan is commerce, and that, well attended to, will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders. Thomas Paine made a strong argument against men of passive tempers who wanted reconciliation with Britain. Men of passive tempers look somewhat lightly over the offenses of Britain, 
and still hoping for the best, are apt to call out, Come, come, we shall be friends again for all this. But examine the passions and feelings of mankind, bring the doctrine of reconciliation to the touchstone of nature, and then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. If you cannot do all these, then are you only deceiving yourselves, and by your delay bringing ruin upon posterity. Your future connection with Britain, whom you can neither love nor honor, will be forced and unnatural, and being formed only on the plan of present convenience, will in a little time fall into a relapse more wretched than the first. But if you say you can still pass the violations over, then I ask, hath your house been burnt? Hath your property been destroyed before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on or bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands, and yourself the ruined and wretched survivor? If you have not, then are you not a judge of those who have. But if you have, and still can shake hands with the murderers, then are you unworthy of the name of husband, father, friend, or lover. And whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a sycophant. Here again for a recap on the influence that this work by Thomas Paine had on colonial Americans is Yale professor Joanne Friedman. The power of the pamphlet wasn't just in its argument or in specific points of argument, but rather it was in the way that it reversed prevailing assumptions. Paine forced readers to consider a whole new way of looking at the impending crisis and actually at the entire imperial system. He laid bare assumptions that had led colonists to resist independence, and then by exposing these biases and holding them up to scorn, he forced people to think beyond what they had thought before. Thomas Paine was challenging the way things had always been regarding the survival of liberty. Professor Friedman describes the mindset of those who remained in support of the old way of doing things in contrast to what Paine was writing in Common Sense. So basically the old paradigm had been Liberty can survive among brutal and self-interested men only through a balance of institutionalized forces so no one can monopolize the power of the state and rule without opposition. So monarchy, nobility, and the people have an equal right to share in the struggle for power. Complexity in government in this sense is a good thing. Simplicity allows for monopolization. Well, Paine argues complexity is not a virtue in government. It simply makes it impossible to tell who is at fault. Paine charged that the complexity of the British government was designed to serve the monarchy and the nobility, that the king did nothing but wage war and hand out gifts to his followers, and that this entire idea of British constitutional institutional balance was a fraud. O ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. Oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. 
Youth is the seed-time of good habits, as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interests, occasioned by an increase of trade and population, would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able might scorn each other's assistance, and while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the Union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy, and the friendship which is formed in misfortune, are, of all others, the most lasting and unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characters. We are young, and we have been distressed. But our concord hath withstood our troubles, and fixes a memorable area for posterity to glory in. The present time, likewise, is that peculiar time which never happens to a nation but once, that is, the time of forming itself into a government. Most nations have let slip the opportunity, and by that means have been compelled to receive laws from their conquerors, instead of making laws for themselves. First they had a king, and then a form of government, whereas the articles or charter of government should be formed first, and men delegated to execute them afterward. But from the errors of other nations let us learn wisdom, and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right end. In Part 4 of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, he specifically calls for a declaration of independence, a declaration that would come to fruition just months after this pamphlet was first published. However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence. Some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, for some other powers, not engaged in the quarrel, to step in as mediators, and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on forever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we profess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must, in the eye of foreign nations, be considered as rebels. The present is somewhat dangerous to their peace for men to be in arms under the name of subjects. We, on the spot, can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, 
declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition towards them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so, until, by an independence, we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. Thomas Paine became the voice of American independence when he published Common Sense. He turned men and women who were sympathetic to the status quo into rebellious, freedom-fighting Americans so that future generations could enjoy this glorious bounty that we call America. And this is Our American Story.